1: Hello. Next year on the LRB's Close Readings podcast, there'll be three new series running monthly from January to the end of the year. Over the next three days, we'll be introducing each of them, starting today with Colin Burrow and Claire Bucknell, introducing their series on satire. Hello, and welcome to this series of Close Readings podcasts from the London Review of Books on the subject of satire. I'm Claire Bucknell, a fellow in English at All Souls College, Oxford, and a contributor to the LRB. And for the next 12 episodes in our series, I'll be joined by Colin Burrow, also a Fellow of All Souls and a contributor to the paper.
0: Hello, Claire. Lovely to be here.
1: Lovely to be here, too. Our series will take you from the early 16th century all the way down to the mid-20th, focusing on 12 of the most important and interesting literary satires or groups of satires written in English during that time. In the early modern period, we'll move seamlessly from a prose satire by Erasmus in Latin, The Praise of Folly.
0: We'll be talking about a translation, though, won't we? We won't be talking in Latin.
1: Yes, I've been persuaded that we ought to talk about the translation.
0: It was a a hard argument to win, but I won.
1: Then to John Donne's hot headed verse satires, to Ben Johnson's drama Volpony, and then the Earl of Rochester's Filthiest Lampoons. The they high really
0: point. are very, very naughty, and we should warn people of that fact, shouldn't we, Claire? Get ready. Yeah.
1: In the 18th century, we'll begin with a comic drama, John Gay's The Beggar's Opera, before coming to Alexander Pope's The Dunciad and Lawrence Stern's giant unruly novel, Tristram Shandy.
0: And The Dunciad's pretty unruly as well. So unruliness is going to be a kind of theme, isn't it, really?
1: Yes, controlled unruliness will be be our keynote. Are you
0: suggesting I'm being too unruly?
1: (laughs) Then there'll be an episode on Jane Austen's Emma and one on Byron's satiric epic poem, another unruly thing, Don Dewin. Um And then in the final section of the series, we'll explore the cardinal importance of being earnest, we'll discuss Evelyn Waugh's A Handful of Dust, and we'll close with an episode on Muriel Sparks' novels. And I should say um, that no close familiarity or familiarity at all with any of these is required for you to enjoy the series, we hope. And in each case, we'll be situating texts broadly in their historical context, as well as focusing on the details of what each satire is trying to do and how.
0: Yep, and we'll also make it fun. So the context won't be dreary strings of date, but sharp, focused episodes that illuminate the texts. And we're going to start with... The 16th century, and that's not because there wasn't satire before then. We're going to talk quite a bit, aren't we, about about Roman satire and the way in which it influences English writing, going right through even to even war, really. And we're going to, but we're going to start there because interesting things begin in the 16th century. Writing in in a persona of folly, Erasmus sets up a whole vein of of satiric writing and its association with uh, impersonation of others. And that goes along with the way in which satire often speaks in many different voices. And we'll be getting a lot of different voices into the series. And we'll think about formal and generic developments in satire between the 16th century and the 20th century. So it's a big wide field in which to frolic Mm. and we'll be doing it. we'll, We'll be drawing attention to the fact that in the 16th century, Satyrs really were frolicsome creatures. They were associated with satyrs, the uh, wild woodland creatures who would do naughty things. And so our course will be haphazard and rangy uh and indeed slightly satirical mutually satirical you're not going to be satirical of me no I to... i'll be
1: extremely serious no, and good. colin will be colin will be incidentally <laughs> satirical
0: i'll believe that when i see it anyway we we could have done lots of other stuff al- alongside the uh literary texts that we talk about and one of our themes really is that satire isn't necessarily a, anything we'd want to call a genre mm. that it's more like a mode or a way of doing things. So you could have satirical essays or satirical novels or dramas or satirical TV series. Uh, And I was quite keen to do a a session on Succession, which is one of the great satires of our age. But, you know, we will have that kind of multimedia satire very much in view throughout, won't we?
1: We will. And it was sort of a struggle, actually, to whittle down this series to 12 authors or texts. Mm. Within it, we've included some well-known satires, at least in English faculties across the world, such as uh, Pope's Dunciad and Wilde's Ernest.
0: And I think one of the things we're going to be trying to do is mm. de-academicise those works that are yes. taught in English faculties, isn't it? I and mean, yes. we're going to make the Dunciad seem fun again. That's what we're going to do. Not that it's ever not been fun, but, you know, it can be we're a gonna, bit overburdened.
1: Gonna, yes, take away some of that scholarly baggage that, that possibly yeah. burns it, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and alongside those, we've included some unfairly lesser known ones, which we felt shed light on, you know, the shapes that satire can take on or the kinds of grievances it likes to air, such as the text we begin with, Erasmus's Praise of Folly.
0: Which used to be a sort of staple of, of courses in general culture, and now almost no one reads. Um, so, so we're that, about to remedy that. We are, Definitely.
1: We couldn't fit everything in. Um, The eagle-eyed amongst you will recognise that we don't have an episode on Jonathan Swift, for instance. But we found that Swift in many ways kind of diffuses himself through such a large number of our authors that he'll be present in some form fairly constantly. We have episodes on Jane Austen and Muriel Spark. But it is hard to ignore the fact that over the centuries, few women have written and published satire, which has often tended to be a homosocial mode and largely because of our old friend Juvenal has had misogynistic influences baked into it since the Roman period. And we want to bring this up. We return to it as a problem and a point of interest throughout the series.
0: Yeah, and I suppose one reason for it is that satire is very often the product of small groups of men in educational establishments. And, and that does mean that women tend to speak less vocally, or if they do, they're, they're um, presented through voices that are not entirely wonderful. And that is a real feature, a a real and recurrent feature of satirical writing that we won't be shying away from. But it 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 is a sadness. And I think one of the things we'll want to think about later on in relation to Muriel Spark is the way in which there is a sort of generation of female novelists who are drawing on the sharp satirical energies of Jane Austen to articulate the position of overqualified women in jobs for which they are massively uh, um, super equipped. And I think that strand will be a very important theme of the whole thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, the real reason for talking about satire, I suppose, is that it It is the way into a period. So satire is all about what you hate, and you can know more about a person from what they hate than you can from knowing what they like. And satire is also all about what a particular period or a particular person finds funny or absurd about its own age. And Jane Austen, obviously brilliant at seeing what's funny about, about her age whilst also sort of admiring it, but not quite. And so satire is a way into an entire cultural history, uh, and we'll be talking about small communities. We, we'll be talking, for example, about the way in which the inns of court influenced Dunn's satire, those very small communi- communities of lawyers. But we'll also be talking about the way, in sa- the way in which satirists get within the social structures of their period and take a massive lever or a sledgehammer or occasionally something some more violent organ uh, to prise it apart and, and in saying that I'm thinking of of Rochester who certainly has one particular organ that he talks about rather a lot mm-hmm. so you know it, it, satire is not just about satire it's about more or less everything because it's a way of structuring priorities about who you like and about who you are And it is therefore a a recurrent and pervasive theme within any literary history. And it's particularly strong, I think, actually within English literary history.
1: And satire is always positional, isn't it? It's always reactive. It takes up an attitude. It triangulates itself in relation to the world. It's always sort of pointing to realities either inside itself and those simultaneously invented or ideal ones that it holds up. And like irony, which is one of its chief tools and which we'll be talking a lot about, it's interested in incongruity as a structure or as a subject. So the difference between what is and what might or should be.
0: Yeah, and I think that's partly what makes it actually quite difficult to read often because you've got people who are divided in themselves because they hate something out there in the world which is also something in there within themselves and it often means that you're not quite sure what or who they're attacking and that discomforting aspect of satire where it seems to be getting inside the head of the satirist and exposing dark fears you know those things make it make for difficult writing And I think satire also often uh, is aggregative. That's to say, it gives you a load of instances of a phenomenon, and it moves around panoramically. And that means that you know we're used to structures, narratives that follow from a beginning to a middle and towards an end. And satire often just ranges. It lists. It accumulates. And it its eye swivels violently around the world. In which it's situated, and again, that just makes it quite hard to hold down a thread. So our job, Claire, mm-hmm. is going to be to help people hold that thread, to navigate that line between um, self-hatred and hatred of the world, and that line between incoherence, mm-hmm. which is often something that the satirist sort of ends up with. I mean, it's, you know Swift screaming at the world, really, and um, and, and done in a similar way, perhaps almost incoherent with his hatred and self-hatred. And we will guide people through those difficult coils and intricacies within the satiric tradition.
1: And on top of all that, we'll be thinking too about satire's efficacy. Satirists make all kinds of often inflated claims about what their work is going to do to the thing that it hates, you know, attack it, scourge it, whip it, cleanse it, etc., But as Jonathan Coe pointed out in an excellent piece for the LRB, often what it ends up doing is laughing, giggling at the world and involving the like minded in its laughter, which is very gratifying to feel that we're all laughing about the same thing and we're all intelligent and above it. But what that does sometimes is let laughter take the place of protest or action. So one of the things we'll be interested in during the series is this question of satire's real-world ambitions for itself, what it can or wants to achieve.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that really interests me in satire is its political orientations. And quite a lot of satirists have been viciously conservative. And that is curious in that, you know, if you're whipping something and wanting to reform it, how can that be a conservative position. And equally, there are other satirists who are politically ra- radical. I mean, George Orwell would mm. be an example. And it, uh, and one of the things that I will want to find out from our discussions, Claire, you will mm. have to tell me, is how that political amphibiousness can actually coexist with a single thing called satire. Are there many different kinds of satire? Is there a left-wing satire and a right-wing satire? Or, or is satire politically neutral in its attempt to get a purchase on what's bad about the world around it.
1: You can be or want to be a radical thinker like Byron was and also be obsessed with living conservatively within inherited structures.
0: And with your own necktie, in Byron's case, yeah. Um,
1: Which brings us on to the levity that you can expect from this series. Colin, give us some levities that are coming our
0: way. I'm very keen on filth.
1: I know you are. Um,
0: and there certainly will be quite a lot of filth. There will be uh, moments of uh, disinhibited hilarity.
1: Unguarded. Un- unguarded
0: hilarity. hilarity. Um, you know, the episode on Rochester will certainly have some rude words in it. And we're not going to be bleeping them out, are we?
1: We might not, but the LRB might. That's
0: true. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, 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 so we, we will expose satire in all its rambunctious, randy glory. That's what we're going to do, isn't it?
1: Can't wait to have you join us on this journey. (laughs) (laughs) You'll love it. You'll be able to listen to the full series of On Satire and all the other close reading series, new and old, as part of the LRB Close Readings podcast subscription available through Apple Podcasts and other podcast apps. Or if you'd like to receive all the books discussed in this series and have access to online seminars with Colin Clare and special guests throughout next year, you can sign up to Close Readings Plus, which will go on sale from Wednesday the 22nd of November. You can find details for both ways of subscribing in the description.